Melissa Cristina Marquez is a multi-hyphenate Latina in STEM. Currently a PhD candidate at Curtin University, she's become a household name via her scholastic books, the Wild Survival series, freelance environmental issue articles, and TV presenter roles. She's been featured in numerous media articles, a Forbes 30 Under 30 honoree, and listed as one of InStyle's Badass Women of 2021. Host of the Conciencia Azul Spanish podcast, Melissa is passionate about making the scientific industry more diverse and inclusive. Melissa Cristina Marquez, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Thank you so much. And so we're very lucky to get you right before you go out on another expedition, this time to the Arctic. Uh, You're most known for your work with sharks, but just tell us how you found your way into this exciting life that like most of us would only dream to make our adventure and our passion, our career. You know, I think it's one of those things where you kind of, dream your biggest dreams and some people might laugh some people might say it's impossible but if it's something that's set on your heart you kind of go after it you ignore not so much the naysayers but the people who don't really believe in that because you know that's not a dream that's been imparted on their heart it's on your heart and so I think it was a lot of passion it was a lot of stubbornness and a lot of networking as well and as yeah exactly and and you've spoken you've presented on this as well you didn't have directly not just in your family although I believe that there there was one a marine biologist you know, a distant family member but um you just you, you still there aren't that many role models of you know one you know female scientists it's it's a thing that you have to work harder which you must know and then also latina uh, scientists or marine biologists it's not something you yourself i won't say it's an endangered species but not so documented species no no do you know what it, it is one of those things where i i can name a few latina marine biologists in my hands Definitely a lot more than I used to, but at least ones who are older than me, I I still haven't met as many now younger than me. Thankfully, we've kind of changed the tide there, and there's quite a lot of up-and-coming ones, which I'm really, really proud of and excited to see kind of how we leave a mark in the world. Uh, Yes, and so... And you and now you you specialize really in in sharks and for this again this must be it's, it's so male dominated. Why were you drawn drawn particularly to sharks when you were growing up in Puerto Rico, for example? So I was drawn to drawn to the ocean when I was in Puerto Rico just because Puerto Rico is an island, so it's surrounded by the water, and those were my first memories was me out in the beach. For sharks in particular, I actually didn't get involved with them until uh, we moved from Mexico because after Puerto Rico we moved to Mexico I'm half Mexican and so when we moved from Mexico to the states that was when my parents kind of sat me down in front of the tv handed me a remote and they were like all right have at it because that was the first time that I was really had almost free reign of the tv remote and that's when I came across Discovery Channel Shark Week which was airing during the summer and we moved during the summer I saw a great white shark leaping out of the ocean and I was hooked. They were just, they looked like such majestic animals and to my tiny little mind, I couldn't believe something so big could leap out of the water almost effortlessly. So it was really amazing getting to see that for the first time and it hooked me. 
And what are some things that you feel, I mean, they are majestic and I think perhaps unfairly maligned in some ways. I mean, we've seen like um, terrifying representations of them and say in cinema, mm. uh, but I guess for you, what frightened others attracted you? I mean, it's one of those things where I know that a lot of people, when you think of sharks, you think of uh, hammerheads, great white sharks, tiger sharks, bull sharks, but there's so much more diversity than just that. There's over 500 different species. And on average, we're discovering new species, I want to say about like every two weeks, I think was the statistic that I've heard, not just of sharks, but also of their cousins, like the stingrays, the skates, and sometimes the chimeras as well. And so knowing that diversity exists, uh, for me is really important to kind of get that message out there because there's bound to be a shark species that people find adorable, such as the epaulette shark, the rough shark, uh, wobegons or zebra sharks, also known as leopard sharks. There's so many out there that I know people think are cute. And when you start to kind of change that perception of what a shark looks like, I think we can kind of lessen the fear people fear towards them just a little bit. What in the last, say, 10 or 20 years, because you're working with, I guess you've had mentors in the field and, you know, what they knew then compared to what you know now? I mean, we've we've discovered quite a bit about sharks in the last couple of years. You know, we've discovered that some species can be social. Some species have friends. Uh, we've discovered new anatomy of them. Like, I think uh, the last... It was a few weeks ago, if not a couple of days ago. Some species actually have pockets for their claspers, which is their male reproductive organs, essentially penises. They have pockets for their claspers to reduce drag. We've discovered bioluminescence in certain species that glow. For what purpose, we're not 100% sure outside of communication, possibly camouflage. Uh, We've discovered new species. We've discovered new places where they are being found. So yeah, we've definitely discovered a lot about sharks in the last couple of years. And I just have to say, and I do think it's amazing, and and maybe I'm not sure if men are jealous, but they do have the two claspers, the two penis. Yeah. So for those who don't know, sharks have internal reproduction. And so it's not like fish where the females spurt out the eggs and the males for out sperm. It all has to be internally done. And so for male sharks, they have two claspers that essentially are modified portions of their pelvic fins that allow for the transfer of sperm into the shark. And so the reason why they have two claspers is because they have two pelvic fins. It's just fascinating because I, I don't know what it means in terms of how, when you have two of a same organ or it's just, I. I, I always think in this kind of human terms, I, I can't imagine what it is. It's, it's like a whole other planet underwater. And so now you're going to uh, another territory. You're going into, with the ocean explorers. Tell us what that takes in that journey. Very excited to join the ocean explorers in the Arctic in the next couple of days. So I am one of four explorers for original National Geographic series called Ocean Explorers. And we are currently traveling the Atlantic Ocean and helping scientists do some incredible work around the Atlantic Ocean. So we just came from the Azores where we worked with some really charismatic animals and we are now gearing up to go to the Arctic and 
enjoying just some absolutely breathtaking wildlife there. So that's going to be my first time that I've been in the Arctic. Really excited to get to hang out with some deep cold water sharks that I've only read about before. So getting to work hands-on with some experts there just absolutely blows my mind uh, because the Ocean Explorer boat has some incredible technology on there. So being able to study the Arctic like it's never been done before is really, really exciting. And what are you um, uh, hoping to to document or what do you, uh, you know, what are you, it's changing so rapidly now. I mean, what is at the forefront of your mind, if we can speak a little bit beyond just marine biology, but like what we're doing to the planet, global warming and how the oceans have changed and the territories you're visiting? The work that I'm doing specifically pertains to Well, right now, my job is making sure that the scientists that are on board get the results that they need. So I'm adding my own expertise and my own background knowledge and my own skills to be able to make sure that their work is as successful as possible. Some of their work, yes, does deal with the changing of animal behavior in regards to climate change. Some of the work is in regards to the changing of environment or habitat in regards to climate change. So even though it it doesn't directly always have to deal with climate change, such as temperature numbers, for example, in the Arctic, it'll be ice cores. I think no matter what kind of work you do in the science field, it's always going to be impacted by climate change, at least right now. And so yeah, we're, we're all kind of doing our own little part to fill in this giant puzzle piece that is our planet in the next couple of years. Yeah, and covering, speaking around the same topic of the effects of climate change that aren't necessarily temperature related or also temperature related in a way, I was looking at a recent study from Nature that was telling us that shark populations have declined more than 70% since 1970. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why that's important and what the repercussions of the decline might lead to and what might listeners be able to do about that? Yeah, really, really good question. So for, and funnily enough, I just covered this recently for Forbes. So we've got an amazing planet that holds so many different animals. We're constantly learning that we have new species. So there's more than 1,200 different species of sharks and rays that inhabit our beautiful oceans. And unfortunately, many of them are being pushed towards extinction. So in 2014, the IUCN, so the International Union for Conservation of Nature, their red list, which showcases animals that are uh, critically endangered and more susceptible to extinction, it reported that 25% of shark and ray species were being threatened, with 25 species being critically endangered. And those numbers were recently revisited in early 2021, with it now being 36% under threat. And the number of critically endangered species actually tripling from 25 to 76. So out of eight of those nine species that were uplisted to critically endangered category, they're mostly raised. And so, you know, it's one of those things where the sheer number and diversity of these animals that are facing this kind of extinction is just mind boggling. And overfishing is by far the greatest threat that these animals face. Uh, So like you said, a new nature study that has come out shows that three quarters or 70, 70% 
of oceanic sharks and ray species now qualify as threatened with extinction under that red list criteria for the IUCN. And so all of these alarm bells are kind of ringing and a lot of people want to know how they can help. Because even if you're in the middle of a country, you have never seen a shark before, your choices impact whether these animals are going to have a chance to stand against extinction or not. One of the most easiest ways that you can help sharks is by making sure that any seafood that you eat is sustainable. So it's sustainably caught. And there's quite a few ways that you can do this. One of them is downloading a sustainable seafood app. So there is a plethora of seafood apps out there now uh, for different regions around the world that you can download on your phone. Or you can actually download a little booklet that you can print out and keep in your wallet or in your purse. So anytime you make a seafood choice, you can actually refer to this guide to see whether or not the choices you have been making are either sustainable or whether you can maybe make a healthier choice. Of course, there's the choice of also just not eating seafood at all, which is a personal thing that helps as well. Making sure that you don't buy any unsustainably caught shark products is also a really good way of helping out our oceans and our animals. Donating either your time and or your money to programs that are dedicated to helping protect our our animals, are dedicated to doing more research about these animals is always helpful. Voting for people who have the environment and our oceans in mind is always really important. And of course, being critical about what you share in regards to these animals. So as you guys said earlier, sharks do kind of face a PR problem in that they seem super terrifying. And that's just not the case. They just have a really bad reputation that they don't deserve whatsoever. And so being critical of what kind of things you share in regards to sharks, you know, is it really necessary for you to share another article that says sharks are man eaters or mindless killers? You know, is that the best thing really to share? Make sure that what you're reading is factually correct. All those kind of little things tend to add up to making sure that we can peacefully coexist with these animals and give them a fighting chance. Yeah, those are really strong, important messages. Uh, and we could also like, dig deeper into the, we did an interview with the, the Marine Stewardship Council. Sometimes a, a few of these labeling agencies also come into under scrutiny. I really feel that we could perfect them. I, w- I would love to see that. And then, of course, as you, as you rightly say, there is the option, you know, to reduce our consumption of fish or, or meat or go vegan. And, and that's interesting. And I, and then there's other solutions, too. I mean, I don't know. We'll do an interview soon with like, I don't, it's kind of strange, but like meat that's produced in like in dishes, like, you know, it doesn't it's not done on the land. It's like created in a, a laboratory. I don't know if there's a solution that way in terms of um, consuming fish that's created in, in labs. I don't know where you stand on, on that per- personally. You know, I think it, it's one way to help our oceans. You know, do I think that stopping fishing completely will help our oceans? Not really, mostly because we're forgetting then about the other part of the equation that comes with conservation, which is humans. There are so many people who depend on the ocean for not only their livelihoods, but also their sustenance. So I believe that sustainable fisheries 
can happen. They do exist. We, we see examples of it all the time. But alternatives are definitely a way to kind of help out for those who don't need to rely solely on seafood or uh, solely need to rely on the ocean for whatever it really is. Alternatives, are, I think, are always a good option. Uh, a good solution, if you will. Uh, definitely. And and another service uh, that you do for providing, being a role model to uh, women in science, to Latinas in uh, marine biology, is that you have this podcast, The Conciencia Azul, and this is entirely Hispanophone, is, or is it including some English language interviews now? I'm not sure. So right now it's just Spanish, yes. And I think that's so wonderful because many of us don't think, I mean, with us, we're an international project, although primarily we do interviews in English, but we do it in other languages as well as in Spanish. And Mm -hmm. I think that people don't really reflect on how much, you know, English just dominates. We take it for granted, but, you know, how people are just can't get informed if they don't have you know, a good working knowledge of English, then they're being shut out. And even as scientists, I imagine, even writing the grants or all those things, it's just unfairly balanced. Oh, 100%. I actually wrote an article about this, uh, a scientific article about this, how we are doing a disservice to the world with only communicating science in English. There are so many people who don't know English, who know very broken English and as you do with translating from one language to another you lose a lot of the meaning a lot of the contextuality so I think getting science out there in multiple languages is so 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 important to not only make sure that people are scientifically literate but also just to have more science communication out there it's really it's kind it's arrogant and it's kind of ridiculous everyone has to be a part of this solution yeah no I I 100% agree it is we're definitely lacking there, that's for sure. And so in, in these interviews, you're not just doing interviews on sharks, you're covering all of uh, marine biology. And so what are some interesting things that you've learned in that process? I, I've just learned everything, really. There's just so much out there that we don't know and that people are doing just such amazing work out of it. Yeah, there is just some incredible work that's being done in our world in from Latin American scientists and from scientists who speak Spanish that isn't being talked about in the mainstream media because it's not in English. So it kind of makes me wonder, wow, what are we missing from other parts of the world in other languages that aren't quote unquote mainstream? Do you cover, you know, indigenous approaches, you know, in terms of balance approaches and understanding respect for the natural world and their environments? I I really want to do more of that. So Conciencia Sur right now is in a bit of a hiatus just because it's a bit hard to record a podcast when you're out on a boat with unreliable uh, internet, but also really long hours. And so, yeah, when we're back for the next season, I really want to have that focus also on indigenous knowledge, because I think it's really important that indigenous knowledge and modern technology and modern techniques work together to better inform us of our natural planet and how we can move forward and again, coexist better with our planet. Yes, one thing that we've been discussing, say, with those who who work with indigenous groups or like are living part of the year in the Amazon 
is that this approach is, is so different. We think about so much in the West about it's really important our individual rights. Even when you talk about uh, climate change and the environment, it's like I own this and maybe I'll give up some of this in order to, you know, for the the greater community or the world. But when you speak with people and living in harmony with nature and the indigenous peoples, they it's it's all collective and it's actually just so beautiful and natural. It, it, it's not me, me, me uh, and what I own and what you don't own. Even uh, we recently did an interview with uh, Martin van Hildebrand who has uh, worked over 50 years in the Amazon. And he, he, they, he even had to convince them that they needed to how we say have a paper of ownership of their parts of the forest because they couldn't even understand and then he, he explained that it was important you know just to keep on living as they did but it's such a beautiful way of feeling that you know nature doesn't belong to you it's just some it it, it you're you're its guests 100 percent, i agree it, and it's something that i find really interesting how we've shifted from a mindset uh from our ancestors where it was you work with the planet you don't take as more than you need and now we're, we've gotten a bit greedy and we're taking more way more than we actually need and the way more that's actually sustainable so i think if we go back to that mindset back to a way of living where we take just what we need no more no less we can possibly coexist with our planet and its inhabitants a little bit better you know that that's that's i think end goal for me is changing our world to see how the way that we're living right now is not sustainable and how we need to do better, all of us, to better inhabit this planet. You know, and it's not everyone doing everything perfectly. It, I'd rather have tons of people doing it imperfectly than one person doing it perfectly. So I think stopping the shame of people not being eco-friendly or green because they're not doing it perfectly. I think we need to stop that. We all need to kind of meet where one another is and be like, right, you're doing the best you can. You're doing the best you can. That's perfect. Keep going at it. And when you can do better and when you know to do better, try to do that. So it, it's just constantly involving to becoming a better person and becoming a better steward of our planet. And there's two, actually, there's so many things I want to ask you. Uh, you are famously, you had a famous encounter with a, a crocodile, I should say. Uh, but before staying on the subject of the, the different approaches to nature and the, also the different places in the world that you've lived, starting off in Puerto Rico and Mexico, I guess the Bahamas, uh, New Zealand, and so many places. Just tell us a, a few of the things that you've learned along the way and the, the pro different approaches to the natural world and living in harmony with it. I think probably one of the biggest things I've learned from the work that I've done and the interactions that I've had is that we have so much to learn from animals. For me, I actually have a talk that is titled What Sharks Have Taught Me About Being a Human. And they've taught me how to become a better person and a better scientist. They've taught me patience. They've taught me collaboration is key. They've taught me that confidence and attitude is everything. They've taught me that diversity is beautiful and that we can thrive off of diversity and inclusive ideas. Yeah, they've taught me so, so much. And I think if we kind of stop and listen to what our planet is telling us, 
observe the animals that we share this planet with and learn a little bit from them. I, I think we'd all be better off. And speaking a little bit I, about your encounter, it wasn't, uh, you weren't harmed too much, I don't think, but w- with the crocodile, just, just tell us a little about that. So a few years ago, while I was filming a shark show, we went filming at night. And during that time, we were filming with what we knew were to be American crocodiles. They left the scene, so we thought they had actually left the entire area, uh, just because they were probably overwhelmed from the lights and the noise. And at the end of this shoot, uh, my headset so I had an underwater mask that you could hear people from but I could also talk from Uh, it started acting up so we were saying all right we're done with the dive we're going up and during that time when my buddy went up and I was just waiting for a little bit for him to move just because if I went up at the same time as he did his fins would have hit my face and I didn't want that to happen so waited a few extra seconds and in those few extra seconds uh, an American and crocodile grabbed my leg and started dragging me backwards. I believe it was what we call an exploratory bite. Sharks actually do it too because they don't have hands to hold on to stuff. So they feel with their mouths what something is. And so I think it was just trying to figure out if I was food. And when it realized I wasn't food and I probably tasted really bad, it just spat me out. That's so, uh, I can't imagine what would, what was going through your mind, the adrenaline and just, it must be a kind of rush of things you're calculating all at the same time. Yeah, it was funny because we, a lot of people say that when you face this kind of danger, you either have a fight or a flight. And I realized there's a third one and it's play dead. So I went really, really still. And I've actually talked about this with other people who have been bitten. Uh, by animals and they said that their mind actually slowed down as well so my mind kind of almost went through a checklist like all right you've got enough oxygen because you just changed your tank so you don't have to worry about that try not to move your leg feel around for like a rock or a branch or something so it went like almost in a really methodical sort of way which was really strange to me but apparently it's something that our minds are capable of no it's really it's strange a time must move uh, slower and yet it must be very quick but you just learn how to I, I I'm only surmising I've never been bitten by anything but it's it's amazing what the mind and the body can do you know f- faced with mortality like that and I, I can't even imagine what it is like on a daily basis just going into the cages and and even just the idea of tagging sharks to me it just seems so I don't think I could summon that in myself. So what you deliver this talk about what sharks have taught you about yourself and about people. How do you draw on these things in your daily life? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because a lot of people think that the biggest risk that I face when I'm working with sharks is the sharks. But there are things far more dangerous than the sharks. You know, I, I have a bigger chance of something going wrong with my scuba equipment than I do getting bitten by a shark. I have things going wrong with the, or far more of a risk of something going wrong with the boat than I do of a shark. And so for me, working with the sharks isn't as big of a risk as just living everyday life. You know, we're not promised, we're not guaranteed the next second, the next hour, the next day. I could die a really silly death, such as 
slipping on a banana peel or just, you know, leaving this earth in my sleep. So nothing's really guaranteed. And so I think kind of thinking of my mortality in that way of being like, look, at any moment I can go, it doesn't matter whether it's with the sharks or something completely unrelated, any moment I can go, it it kind of reframes everything to being like, okay, I don't have to do anything. I get to do stuff. It's that whole reframing of I am lucky enough that I, I'm living a life that I have curated and love every second of it. Even when I am elbow and knee deep in really smelly chum, I love what I'm doing. So I think kind of reframing it and being like, really the chances of you dying from a shark related anything are so slim when you look at the statistics. I mean, I'm more likely to get bit by someone in New York than I am ever getting bit by a shark. And so Yeah, I think it's just having those statistics in the back of my mind, knowing that my training and the people who I'm around, this training is up to par and, you know, safety is always our number one priority. I I don't really think about it as a risk. And instead, I just think about it as a really lucky opportunity that I get to do what I do. My name is Ellen Hu, and I am a rising sophomore at Scripps College, double majoring in environmental science and media studies. I am also a collaborating podcaster with the One Planet podcast. Growing up, I was afraid of many things, whether that be the dark, heights, or even the costume characters at theme parks. The list goes on and on. And I can most definitely say that sharks were on that list. But Melissa Cristina Marquez points out that my fear of sharks wasn't because I'd ever had a bad experience with them. In fact, the only time I've ever seen a shark was through the glass of an aquarium tank or through my television screen. My, and likely many other people's, fear of these animals is due to, as she calls it, a PR problem. When we think of sharks, we think of great whites and tiger sharks because those are the species television and media have presented to us. It has only been in recent years that other shark species have been given the spotlight. Whale sharks may be the best example, having been featured in Disney Pixar's animated film Finding Dory in 2016. The introduction of a friendly shark character greatly contrasts the great whites used in the original 2003 Finding Nemo movie. When we look at this, it's possible to say that we're making some progress in unraveling the preconceptions that were established by movies like Jaws and The Shallows but we're still a long way from breaking the stereotype. This is a prime example of how media intersects the way we perceive and treat our planet. That doesn't mean it's too late to make it part of the solution. Marquez has taken on the task of fighting shark stereotypes and instilling an appreciation of sharks and rays within the minds of people who may not have any experiences with these marine animals. In doing so, she's simultaneously addressing the importance of inclusivity within conservation work and scientific advancements in relation to the environment. As a woman and person of color in STEM, she's using her experiences and platform to boost other non-English speakers to share their discoveries that do not get very much press. These voices often hold powerful implications, but go unnoticed. Yet, if we want to solve the climate crisis, we need to work together, collaborating across languages and experiences. Inclusivity is key, and something we need to address more often. But back to sharks. What exactly can we do to overcome the stigma associated with these animals? As Melissa mentions, dietary choices can also help. 
Consider downloading sustainable seafood guides from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch, Oceana, or the Natural Resources Defense Council. Alongside these choices, self-education and spreading the word are individual actions that you can start right now. As we look into the future, it is important that we address the stem of our fears and overcome them in order to conserve the diverse ecosystems that are essential to our world. Perhaps adopting Marquez's mindset, that of choosing to appreciate every moment we have rather than constantly fearing the possibilities that lie ahead, can help us get there. Now, back to the interview. That's so amazing. It's such a great, great way of thinking about the world. Something that I like need to start doing more of. <laughs> but you had mentioned, or Mia, Mia brought up your TED Talk, and then you, you, you've been doing so many other things with your work in terms of being a science communicator. You have your podcast. You recently released some, some books. I was wondering how you prioritize the different information that you're going to spread. And do you, because of your experience, what have you found works best in terms of being able to spread that information? Oh, I mean, it really just depends on how I'm feeling. So if something is really being heavily covered by the news, obviously that's probably going to be the first priority because there's a bit of a buzz. And so I can get my opinion or I can get my take on that and generate part of the conversation. A lot of times it's just, Am I interested in this? And do I think my audience would be interested in this? And a lot of it is also just, again, getting that feedback from the audience. So quite often I'll hold polls on my social media accounts being like, hey, what do you want to see more of? What do you want to see less of? And just constantly tailoring it to what they want as my audience continues to change and evolve. It's wonderful how you've made science and marine biology accessible and fun, as you say, with games and and lots of things that where you're identifying where people are learning or through the podcasting which can have in-depth conversations people are learning without learning I think that's the best way it just kind of becomes part of your internal landscape I mean that's how I like to learn anyway yeah I mean there's so many different ways to communicate people the message that you want to get out there and so I think you shouldn't limit yourself to just one traditional way you can do it as many ways as you want and however you find fun and in terms of your own uh, teachers or mentors that really um you know you know brought the the oceans alive to you what's what did they teach what did they pass on I mean who are you indebted to to me I have quite a lot of people both in academia and out of academia that have kind of shaped who I am today. Past professors, current professors, people who have just taken me under their wing as either a mentee or just are imparting their knowledge on a constant basis. You know, they've all taught me a little bit about what it means to be a science communicator, even if they weren't actually meaning to. You know, I don't actually have that many mentors who do science communication. They do science and research in some specific way, and they impart that knowledge in a specific way, but none of them are actually doing it in the way that I'm doing it. So their feedback, their knowledge is really valuable to have because I kind of see the other side of the coin and then I can adjust it in a way that I think the audience that I have might be willing to recept or take that in essentially. And so it's a constant learning balance that I'm having to kind of tiptoe 
they're, you know, it, it's constant feedback from my audience. It's constant feedback from how I'm feeling and how I'm executing things. So yeah, all of the people that have kind of helped me along the way have taught me something about how to communicate science and they're responsible for who I am today. And as you are seeing the pollution in the ocean, what are some of the solutions that you've coming across or what are some of the areas that you think we need to be focusing on more? I mean, how can we really combat that? I think probably the most important solution that I'm seeing being talked about right now is the solution of us working together. You know, there's lots of different things that are being thrown around as this is the the band-aid that will kind of help with this problem. And this will definitely help this problem. I think the number one lesson I'm getting from everything that's kind of being broadcasted right now is that we need to work together. Each and every single one of us um, needs to work together, band together, learn together, advocate for our planet together. That's, I think, going to be the most impactful thing is if all of us say, right, it's time to help save our home. Uh, and this, these are the many multiple ways that we can do that. Let's work together and make sure this gets done. Yeah, of course. And one of the things you've already talked about, but something that's really important right now in terms of diversity and bringing everyone together is having that representation in the field of STEM, especially in terms of addressing climate change. So as a Latina in science, I was wondering what advice you would give to other Latinas or Latinos or just people of color who might want to pursue STEM, especially in this field of climate change research. Yeah, you know, I think probably one of the biggest pieces of advice I can give someone is keep the passion. There's a lot of science out there in regards to climate change, how it's impacting our environment, what we can do about it. But there's different ways of getting that information out there. There is the cut and dry way or the way that I think that is quite cut and dry, which is through scientific articles. There's the way that you can do it by talking about it on news outlets and whatnot. But I think If you inject your passion and your drive behind that cause in your own specific way, people are going to be drawn to you and they're going to want to listen to what you have to say. And I'll give you an example Um, that has nothing to do with climate change, but has everything to do with how I communicate science. I am a very, very enthusiastic shark scientist. I have seen a lot of sharks in my lifetime and every single time I see one, regardless of the species, I usually squeal with excitement. I, I am the one who's like, oh my God, oh my God. And the other scientists on board are like, shush, shut up, calm down. But I'm seeing it through a way of, holy crap, this is an animal that's been around for millions of years. This is an animal that many people in their lifetimes will never see alive, let alone in this kind of sphere. This is a dream that I've dreamed of for myself since I was a kid. Like, this is probably the wildest thing that my ancestors would have ever thought I would be capable of, essentially. And so all of that excitement reaches to the surface. And I can't help but be passionate and show that excitement and enthusiasm in what I'm saying and how I'm acting. And people like that. When I've been on TV shows, when I've been on TED Talks or podcasts or through my writing, whenever someone new comes across me, usually one of the first things they say that they send a message to is, you're really enthusiastic. You can see you're excited and you really care about this. We like that. That's infectious. Do that. Be 
find the bit that you are super excited and passionate about and have that translate through your work, people are going to be more intrigued by what you're doing because of that, because they are excited because you're excited. They want to come along that journey that you're taking them. So keep the passion. You know, there's, there's tons of information out there, but how you communicate that in a way that's exciting, that's interesting, that you can kind of develop your own little twist to be able to communicate with the rest of the world, I think is really important. Oh, it's so true. It's It definitely is contagious. And I think about, when you think about the really charismatic people and those that you're really drawn to, or even like in the natural world or, or you know, what is beauty? What are the things that you really want to look at and are fascinated with endlessly? And it's not those that are really so much calling attention to themselves, but it's like those that are really curious and fascinated about something else or like in the natural world like a baby's face we can we can really like even if you're not a mother but you want to just you could just look at a baby's face I think you know for for hours because why their eyes are so big and they are so fascinated in the world because it's new to them and if you can transmit and I as I know you do as a science educator and you can transmit that to others it really can you know it can inspire people to uh, follow a career path that they never even thought of. And I, I love nothing better than just to share the stories of people who are committed and passionate. It's it's the most wonderful thing, because I think that's what we all want, is we all want to have a, lead a life that's full of passion and curiosity. And and uh, only some of us are, are lucky enough or diligent enough to have found uh, that our place in the world like that. So I, in closing, you know, as you think about the future, you know, it's on all of our mind, you know, what kind of world we want to live in, what kind of world we're leaving the next generation, you know, what is that? And what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I, I think probably the biggest thing that I want kind of people to preserve and remember of our planet right now is what we've got. Like, yeah, we, we've lost quite a bit already, but it doesn't mean we have to continue that trend. There's so many creatures out there that I'm worried the only way that future generations are going to know about them is through books. That's one thing that kind of keeps me going is, you know, in the next couple of years, I want to have kids. And in a couple of years from that, they're going to start reading. And I don't want them to look at a book and be like, oh, mom, what is this? And I'll be like, it's a shark. And they're like, are they alive? And I say no. So I think thinking of our planet the way it is now wanting to preserve that and bettering it, making wanting it to be more wild, more protected, again, with that coexisting word, having a way to better coexist with it. So just doing better. I think that's the thing that I, the, the big message that I want to put out there is we can do better and we should do better where we can. It's again, meeting people where they're at and being like, all right, how can we to implement tiny little changes in our day-to-day lives that can lead to big positive effects if we're all doing them together. 
Yeah, that does ac accumulate, D definitely. We, there's no action too small. And yes, we have lost a lot, but nature is resilient and we can, we can regain a lot too. So it's, as you say, not to give up, not to uh, for, forget your passion. Uh, there is so much that we can do and, and you're definitely doing it. So thank you, uh, Melissa Christina Marquez, for all you have done to advance our understanding of sharks, oceans, and marine biology and through your work as a role model advocating for more visibility and inclusivity for women and Latinx voices in science. Thank you for having me. One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Ellen Hu with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Ellen Hu. Digital media coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. The music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>